Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Hello and welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Thursday, the 29th of February, and coming up, SAA's woes continue. Praise for the new Transnet boss, how the middle class in South Africa messed things up. Who is the Department of Health recruiting ahead of the implementation of NHI, and can the multi-party charter power plan keep the lights on? The continually troubled SAA might be flying, but there is still turbulence. The Office of the Auditor General says it's concerned about problems hindering its ability to continue operations as a going concern. I want to analyze this in a little more more detail with Dr. Joachim Vermutten from the University of Johannesburg. He's a well-known transport economist, chartered accountant, accountant and uh, specializes in the air transport sector. Uh, Joachim, good afternoon to you and welcome. What core problems still remain as far as SAA is concerned? Jeremy, uh, good afternoon. Um, fundamentally, uh, you know, the ordinary management systems and financial control that one would find in an organization of this size doesn't exist. That's the core difficulty uh, in it. As a result of that, the Auditor General went from uh, a qualified uh, audit opinion to a disclaimer um, as a result of material misstatements and material findings on the compliance with legislation and the material findings on predetermined objectives and uh, the fact that underlying documentation couldn't be identified. So it's actually not a good picture. Now, to some extent, it's been exacerbated by this whole uh, you know, uh, equity partner uh, transaction mm. that uh, hasn't materialized. So there's the interim board, uh, but the executives are in uh, acting capacities. And, uh, you know, uh, there's uh, not clear organization structure and uh, responsibilities uh, and trained people to actually perform those uh, functions. When, when you talk so, about no financial systems, is this uh, simply poor management and a lack of skills or just bad governance and oversight? Well, I think it's uh, it's a few things. The first one is the appointment of properly trained staff. And secondly, uh, the responsibility to perform those uh, functions. And uh, finally, the inability to record uh, everything and provide sufficient uh, evidence uh, for transactions. So it's a, you know, 
it's, uh, you know, and a disclaimer by the Auditor General means that he can't rely to any extent on it, you know, which is the worst position that you can find yourself. Now, of course, then you enter in a chicken and egg situation. If you're a buyer and there's so much uncertainty on the true facts, what the liabilities are, what the uh, uh, assets are, then, uh, you know, it's very difficult to invest, you know, a lot of money in those circumstances, you know. So, and on the other hand, if it's not finalized, uh, you know, they're trying to keep open those critical positions uh, for uh, a population mm -hmm. at uh, the time that the transaction takes place, you know. So, uh, it's not a clear-cut situation who's in charge, in my view. Dr. Vermutten, this might be out of your area of expertise, but if there are, as you suggest, missteps in the value chain, surely that could have a knock-on or potential knock-on effect on safety in the current operation, given that there might be information that is either missing or misinterpreted. I think the situation is a little bit different in the, in the sense that every person working on the operational side of the airline uh, is individually licensed and uh, uh, to perform certain functions and there's uh, you know individual uh, oversight over the work of every person by a regulatory authority so it's completely different uh, compared to the financial side of things. What then needs to change in terms of the financial systems in your opinion and can it be done quickly? I think that uh, you know, there needs to be clarity on who calls the shots. Uh, ultimately, the executive authority, that's the minister, has to decide uh, to appoint a, a permanent uh, board of directors, not this interim limited uh, story. And they should be bold enough to actually appoint candidates that are suitably qualified for holding those positions on, on a permanent basis. And if the uh, transaction then happens later, that's the equity transaction, that can also be reviewed. But um, fundamentally, you can't sit with a situation where the, some of the critical positions are not filled, awaiting a transaction that has been carrying on for too long. You know, so the actually needs to be. A, a, a central point of responsibility, which in normal circumstances is the board of the company. I'm going to leave it there. Dr. Joachim Vermoorten from the University of Johannesburg, thank you very much indeed for that analysis. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Let's stay with transport and Transnet veteran Michelle Phillips has been appointed to lead the state-owned rail port and pipeline company. You'll know well that Transnet is the beating heart of the South African economy, but at the moment is on life support. The big question, of course, is can she turn things around? I want to give you a view now from Business Unity South Africa's Lunga Malloy. Uh, Lunga, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michelle Phillips has more than 20 years' experience working at Transnet. The general sense among uh, watchers is that this is a good call. Yeah, good, good afternoon, Jeremy, and good afternoon to your listeners. Um, as business, we, we share those sentiments. We think that it will greatly enhance stability not only within Transnet, but also it will foster a, a more workable relationship between Transnet and the business sector. 
And what we hope that um, this will ultimately lead to is an acceleration of the progress in terms of implementing the transmit recovery plan as set out in the back end of last year. How would you define the current relationship between Transnet and the business sector? It's, it's an ever-improving ever relationship. Um, we've had a cordial and very, <coughs> excuse me, and a, and a very productive working relationship with Michelle and her team. And so it's encouraging to see her ascend to the permanent position of chief executive. What strength do you think she brings to the new job? Look, I think uh, for, for business, I think the most encouraging thing is that through ongoing dialogue, she has shown um, um, a real kind of a approach that seeks to, to be consultative. But also she's been very open to, to working with the private sector in terms of resolving some of the issues at Transnet. We also believe that her years of experience within the entity itself is, um, is a good omen as she understands the issues at hand. And we think she's a good fit for the position of the Notwithstanding the Transnet recovery plan that has been well reported on, what does Business Unity South Africa believe her top and immediate priority is? Well, well we think there's, a, there's an urgent need for a turnaround um, at Transnet. There are obviously operational deficiencies that exist, exist within the system. And so we will be looking to her to, to outline a plan in terms of how do we then improve operational performance of the various industry supply chains, including more, more specifically at uh, freight rail and at ports. But also we'll be looking to her to, to implement reforms that seek to modernize the freight transport system and um, ultimately restore its efficiency and competitiveness. But also for us is, is to ensure that she creates an amazing condition for the freight transport system to operate effectively, including a fair degree of private sector participation. The biggest problem, of course, that she has is government uh, saying no more money. That, that it could be a challenge going forward, but I think the, the recent guarantee of about 47 billion rand is a, a necessary financial injection, and it shows a commitment on the part of government to working towards turning the situation around at Transnet. We hope that in future, um, as we then begin to really tackle some of these challenges, uh, more financial support would be made available to the entity for it to be, able, to be able to do so. Do you think there is still private sector appetite to get involved in, uh, uh, in, in the process itself? Yes, of course, there's, there's, there's private sector um, interest and, and a real appetite. We have, since June 2023, been actively working with government in a partnership to tackle some of the issues that do exist in some of our market industries, including energy. And so what we have seen is that there's been great um, policy and regulatory reforms that look to crowding private sector investment. And so that is something that's very encouraging. And so, yes, uh, like I mentioned, there's an ongoing relationship that we have with the, with the government that has resulted in the formation of the National Logistics Crisis Committee. And there we have been actively involved with the private sector in ensuring that our voice is heard in terms of how do we then begin Just a final one. There are so many moving parts within this behemoth of an organization. One of the other big difficulties is internally to get alignment within the organization. I think um, we we trust um, Michelle and her team to to ensure that there is a fair degree of alignment. I think one of the things that was very telling in the 
in the announcement of the guarantee last year by the finance minister or national treasury to be specific, was that it would be contingent on the fact that Transnet itself would not only be uh, setting in place a recovery plan, but also working actively to implement the free logistics roadmap. So I think there's a great degree of policy certainty, um, regulatory certainty, and we believe that that will lead to an alignment within the institution itself. Well, let's see what the first 100 days delivers. Uh, Lunga uh, Malloy from Business Unity South Africa. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, the 11 political parties that are members of the multi-party charter for South Africa have presented what they say is a unified plan to end load shedding once and for all, if, of course, they win the May election. In conversation now with uh, Velen Kosini Tlabisa, who's the president of the Encarta Freedom Party. And Mr. Tlabisa, firstly, how does your plan then differ from current policy that's being implemented? Our plan differs from the the current plan by the government of the day in the sense that the first thing that we will do in order to deal with the load shedding, it will start from the people we employ. We will not employ people on the basis of being cadres, but it will be people fit for job in terms of competency, skill and experience. And we will ensure that the people who have left ESCOM, not simply because they are due for retirement, but because they cannot take it further to work in, at ESCOM while the infrastructure is not maintained properly, we will re-employ those people on the basis of their skill and experience. We will focus on maintaining the infrastructure. Because what put us where we are as a country was the poor maintenance of the infrastructure by the government of the day. We will ensure that the infrastructure is maintained, serviced, timelessly, and we will also ensure that we invest heavily in upgrading the grid infrastructure where necessary new power stations will have to be built and finished on time, not the power station that took decades not being finished, yet the budget being exhausted and seeing no difference. Mm -hmm. Concentrate in ensuring that we introduce the open energy market to ensure that we ease the energy regulation so that there should be a competitive uh, spirit in ensuring the alternative and energy system is introduced in South Africa in terms of concentrating more on the renewable energy while concentrating in maintaining the infrastructure that exists and building new ones to ensure that we cope with the demand and people connected to the grid. Right. Mr. Tlabisa, let me pick you up on a couple of points there. The first one is uh, finding the expertise. Are you confident that the expertise is does it exists right now or they're simply disillusioned with ESCOM or have either left the country? You're going to find it very difficult to find those people, aren't you? It will not be difficult to find out those people. 
because we know some of them are still within the country and if need be, those whom we know decided to leave the country to look for better opportunities because they can't help in our country. We will track those people because many people, when you engage them, who are employees, even some who have not left, they say our government does not want to listen. When you tell them that this is what is going to work, they tell you exactly what you know is not going to work. And some of us are still staying, but some of us have left because they said we can't stay in an entity that does not want to listen on the people with skills and competence in as far as the energy is concerned. Right. Mr. Slabisa, your plan also talks about better maintenance of power plans. How would you do it differently to what is already happening? No, what exists currently is poor maintenance or non-maintenance at all. You do not have to maintain the infrastructure once the engine has broken down. You need to ensure that the service interval for the engine is being followed and the infrastructure is being maintained timelessly. You don't wait until it breaks down, which is a common thing that has happened in South Africa, not only at ESCOM, a number of uh, state-owned entities came to a point of collapse because of poor management, poor maintenance. The railway system has collapsed in our country because of the similar problem that is experienced by ESCOM but under the full watch of the current government. And just a final question, how much more money is your plan going to cost the taxpayer? I cannot be able to speak in terms of rents and cents, but I agree that every South African will agree with us that load shading is a major problem. No matter how much is being invested in 10 things around will be worth doing other than billions of friends that have been bailing out ESCOM with no difference because of the poor approach money is used. If you listen to some reports, there are a number of corruption activities taking place at ESCOM and no consequence management is being introduced. So now, when it comes to the multi-party charter, we said we'll ensure that consequence management is introduced so the money that we will allocate once having been informed correctly where to start, how much is needed, there will be a close monitoring that money is used prudently. And I know even if it will mean costing the taxpayers, we are already paying yet for something that is not delivering the results we want. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Velen Kosini Tlabisa, uh, IFP president, thank you very much indeed, sir. MoneyWeb at Midday. For all your up-to-date stories. The trade union Solidarity has lost its high court bid to scrap NHI posts or a separate branch within the department. More now from Foster Mahali, who speaks for the Department of Health. And first up then, what is your plan going forward and what does this decision mean for the health department? As the Department of Health, we welcome this decision by the court to dismiss legal attempts by Solidarity or the department's ongoing efforts to strengthen the public health system. And this uh, ruling takes way for the department to prepare for the rollout of NHI once it is signed into law. And this judgment simply means the department has got the right 
to continue with the work to strengthen the public health system of the country in response to healthcare needs and demand of the population. Now, part of that process, I understand, is uh, recruiting new people. I want to know if these are being sourced locally, nationally or internationally. All these uh, posts are filled by local uh, people, qualified and competent people to do the work. How many people are you looking for? Uh, we advertising these uh, posts uh, in, in, in batches. So firstly, we started with the uh, senior positions of uh, chief director, which will lead to the lower position, the directors, the deputy directors, and also other technical specialists. So firstly, we feel, uh, we advertised 44 vacancies, which include five chief directors and competent technical specialists. This is all predicated, of course, as you say, on the bill being signed itself. What is your timeline as far as this is concerned? Yes, this has been ongoing, and also I need to clarify that uh, as much as there are some mixed reactions with regards to the National Health Insurance Bill, but what we need to clarify is that uh, these positions are still relevant for strengthening of health system, whether there's an NHI fund or not. This is a common standard in both the private and the public health care sector. How much is this recruitment process uh, for the NHI costing the Department of Health and where is the money coming from? Uh, currently, as I indicated, that uh, the NHI branch uh, is part of the organizational structure of the National Department of Health. But once the bill is signed into law and when we establish the NHI fund, so this branch will be the starting up for the NHI. It is going to be the foundation of the NHI fund. So for now, we will say we are referring to this as NHI branch within the National Department of Health. What is the cost, though, of this new recruitment process? I don't have the actual cost on the top of my head, but, uh, of course, these are senior and competent uh, technical experts, which, uh, of course, uh, the, for example, the chief director level, uh, I think uh, it pays uh, between 1.2 and 1.4, but this we are paying according to government salary levels. But the entire process could run into tens, if not hundreds of millions over time. Obviously, if you need to strengthen the healthcare system and also need to recruit competent and qualified people, obviously uh, you need to be ready to pay. Hence, we had to approach the National Treasury to say for us to strengthen the healthcare system, we need to create uh, these posts and fill them, obviously, at different levels. Of course, uh, starting with the chief director level, starting with the deputy director general level, which is currently occupied by Dr. Nicholas Crisp. I understand that the bill has not been signed into law yet, but given the controversy around the establishment, uh, what specific preparatory work then is being planned for the newly hired staff? Look, as I said, obviously we have to set up uh, the system, as you know, that uh, currently most of the system uh, in public sector, we are still uh, using uh, the paper uh, system. So now we are trying to match the standards of uh, other health systems across the world, like try to move from paper into digital information, but also try to, because a number of people raise the issue of fraud in the public sector. So part of uh, strengthening this uh, NHI uh, branch of fund, we are going to establish a dedicated unit uh, responsible for risk and fraud management, which is going to work closely with the law enforcement agencies together with the 
Auditor General to ensure that we're able to identify all the risks as and when they happen. Don't have to wait until they serious situation. And one of the other big problems that's been identified are concerns from existing healthcare workers, particularly doctors who might consider leaving the sector due to the implementation of NHI. What is your strategy then to combat that? Look, we are used to this uh, threat in South Africa. Every time when you want to uh, come up with initiative uh, that is going to benefit the majority of South Africans, people will always come with all the threats. Obviously, that shows that people are not willing to share their resources uh, with the rest of uh, South Africans. Majority of them, they rely on public health uh, system. As we know that uh, about 85% of the population in the country rely heavily on public health system. So those who are coming with all the threats to leave the country, it shows that they don't care about the health status of other South Africans. So as we always say, people shall share the resource of the country. So it means that they are not ready to serve ordinary people, unemployed people from a rural background. So you don't care if doctors leave, in other words? No, no, we care, but we really understand that. It's, I don't think uh, it's majority of doctors. Maybe it's few people that we understand. People are just exaggerating these numbers to say people, the, the doctors want to leave the country precisely because we want to roll out the National Health Insurance Fund as part of the country to achieve universal health coverage. And also, this universal health coverage is already uh, rolled out in other countries in Europe, UK, and all those things. Some of these doctors want to leave the country. They're going to work in the public health sector in countries like Europe, where already this system is already in place. So we don't understand what could be their reason for leaving the country. If it's precisely because of efforts by the government to achieve universal health coverage, it's unfortunate uh, that uh, uh, it shows that they don't care about uh, the general population of the country. Foster Mahali, thank you very much. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb Now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. And finally, in Tough Analysis, commentator Moletzi Mbeki writes that politically, the middle class eventually gained control of South Africa, but has proved unable to manage its complex inherited economy, which he says is now in a shambles. He joins me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And firstly, why then has the middle class failed to manage the country's complex economy effectively? Well, what's interesting about this middle class is that It grew in the 19th century. Its sophistication was becoming more sophisticated. But after they they were sold out by the British during the peace of Ferenach, because the British now were more interested in labor, in the mines, in the gold mines in particular. And so they gave power to the Afrikaners. And the Afrikaners stunted the growth of this middle class. They didn't destroy it, but they stunted its growth. So during the whole 20th century, this middle class was not allowed to set up companies. There were lots of professions which it wasn't allowed to get involved in because of job reservations. 
and so on and so forth. So his skills level was very much reduced. So that's where one your challenge is. So Moletti and Becky, we're paying the price now. What do you believe then are the long-term implications for this country if the current state of economic mismanagement continues under this uh, historical uh, context that you've set out for me? Well, the historical trend has reversed. You see, after, after 1994, the stunting of this class was stopped because this class now got into power. So it is actually starting to change. It's getting better education, for example, from the top universities in the country, which it wasn't allowed to go into before, or only a few of them were allowed to go in, into these universities. So what we're seeing is that a new generation is starting to emerge. But in the here and now, the old guys are the ones who are controlling the economy. And their objective is, is, is just power, is to consolidate their power. It's not so much economic development. The new generation that is emerging of a new middle class that maybe in 10 years or whatever will, will take over, it will be more economically conscious rather than politically focused. But the problem is the time is running out and we don't really have 10 years, do we? Well, that is the, the challenge that we have is, will this new leadership that emerges, will it have enough time before the economy is, is completely shredded uh, to, 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 have, to rebuild, to have some foundation to build on? So there is a sort of a race in South Africa, if we can put it that way, uh, to... to the other, by the way, the other asset which we have in South Africa, which we, which we saw in the 1970s, the 80s, and I mentioned in the article, is that the, the private sector in South Africa is the oldest private sector in Africa. And it has a lot of highly skilled people, but it tends to keep away from politics, except when there's a very big crisis, like we saw in the 70s and 80s. Then we saw Harry Oppenheimer and Anton Rupert setting up the Urban Foundation and then demanding change, the abolition of apartheid. So they then became more intervened politically. But the difficulty was that once the political change had happened, they went back to business and didn't continue in politics. So this is one of the things that needs to happen in South Africa to, to ensure the country doesn't sink deeper the business leaders have to be more politically engaged. And just a quick answer, one of the dangers here is that radical opposition parties surely could capitalize on the weakness of the middle class's governance to influence future political landscape. That's one of the, of the risks, and we already see this with, with, uh, with the populists, the emergence of populists, Populism, Latin American style populism in, in South African politics. EFF, of course, is a good example of, of this Latin American influence by the populists in Venezuela, uh, Hugo Chavez, and, and, and that. So, yes, that is one of the risks we sit with. Moletti and Becky, I'm going to thank you very much for joining me.
And just before I leave you, let me dial back to our Wednesday online poll. We spoke on the program about South Africa's rhino poaching crisis. I asked if it was due to poor enforcement, corrupt officials or lack of community awareness. Two thirds of our respondents saying the problem is an inside job. Today's poll, concern over SAA's financial systems and viability. My question today is, is the airline worth saving? Should it be closed or show me another check-in? Go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.